Good evening, everyone. Uh, thanks for tuning in to the Christian Campus Fellowship uh, podcast here on Apple and Spotify. Uh, my name is Nicholas Lewis, and we're super glad that you guys are able to tune in. Uh, this is a resource that we actually do have. Uh, we, we, we record the sermons uh, every week, upload them onto Spotify and Apple. So if you ever want to go back and, and watch a prior sermon or um, you even sometimes during the summer, summer months or when I throw up, uh, maybe like an older sermon series to make sure that resource is available to all of you guys. Um, today we're, we're not able to meet together uh, because of the, the massive winter storm that came through uh, the Midwest just a couple days ago. Uh, but I'm hoping that you guys are making the most use of the opportunity. You know, Missouri usually doesn't have as much snow as I'm looking at right now outside. So maybe you guys are going out sledding or, or you know, you're just staying inside, you know, watching a movie, chilling out with friends or, or whatever you might be doing. But I'm great, grateful that you're here um, tuning in. Uh, we're going to be continuing on in our uh, study on the Sermon of the Mount, um, the Sermon on the Mount. And so if you have your Bibles, we're going to be in Matthew uh, chapter 5 today, looking at verses 21 through 26. So if you have your Bibles, if you turn there, we're going we're gonna to be reading through this passage and diving right in. Uh, Jesus here says, he says this, verse 21, You have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. And whoever says you fool will be liable to the hell of fire. So if you are offering your gift at the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift. Come to terms quickly with your accuser while you're going with him to court, lest your accuser hand you over to the judge and the judge to the guard and you be put in prison. Truly I say to you, you will never get out until you have paid the last penny. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. Uh, we thank you for uh, the sermon that Jesus preached. I pray that uh, as we kind of dive into this tonight, that you would give us uh, hearts ready uh, to, to hear what you have to say. Pray, Lord, that you give me accuracy and clarity in the words that I speak, um, that I would present your word um, just as truthfully as you'd want it, and that we can walk away uh, having learned something and, and knowing how to apply it to our hearts. Uh, we thank you for the gift of, of revelation, to know uh, who you are, and to know what you expect of us as, as followers in Christ. And it's in his name we pray. Amen. So uh, the first thing that I, I really just want to bring out of this passage here, because uh, to be really honest, whenever we, at least for me, whenever I approach the Sermon on the Mount, it's easy to be, to be bogged down by the familiarity of the passage. You know, it's, it's probably one of the most common passages that is talked about, um, even for non-Christians or secularists, like, this passage is really well known. Uh, many people know it, and it's easy to be bogged down by the familiarity of it, but and, and kind of lose out on the shocking nature of what Jesus is saying here in the sermon. It's easy to, to kind of imagine, as, as, as I sometimes do when I think of the Sermon on the Mount, it's, it's this like idyllic, you know, you know, long locks of hair, Jesus sitting out on the, the top of this hillside where the grass is just swaying in the wind and the kids and everyone's just kind of out there like it's a, like a, you know, Sunday potluck picnic. Yeah, everyone's sitting out and they're just enjoying the words of Jesus. You know, he's just kind of this Mr. Rogers character sitting out here on the hillside. And to be really honest, I think if we really were to go back into that context and, 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 and to hear as they would hear, what Jesus is saying is is simply astounding 
dare say, kind of preposterous. Like it's it's a it's shocking. This is not this is not easy stuff to hear. And I think it's easy to get caught up in, and to gloss over these passages because it's like oh, I've heard it before, you know, like the golden rule and the beatitudes, and kind of forget that Jesus was really kind of turning their world upside down because everything they had learned by the the scribes and the Pharisees, you know, as Jesus comes with his authority saying that it's it's wrong. It's not correct. In fact, they've they've relaxed the law. They've they've abused the law. And the the the, the bar for righteousness is much higher than they could ever possibly imagine. And so my goal is to really try to help defibrillate our hearts uh, and jolt it with kind of a newfound sense of understanding with the Sermon on the Mount to kind of uncover really what's going on here, uh, not to gloss over it because you know we've read it a million times. And the thing that Jesus says here that that's really shocking is is that he says in verse 21, "You've heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment." But he says, "But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment." What Jesus is essentially saying here that in God's eyes, hatred, anger, unrighteous anger is murder in the heart. Okay, so for all these years, these people have been taught by the Pharisees that if, if you kill someone, like you, if you take their life, if you harm them bodily, then yeah, then you're then you would come up against God's divine judgment. But Jesus is saying, no, no, no. If you have anger or hate in your heart, in your thoughts, or even in the words that you speak, that is the equivalent of murder in God's eyes. That's how holy God's law is. And here's the question that came to my mind when I when I read this this statement and and to kind of recapture the shocking nature of this I think, as, as they would have heard it, it's like saying, okay, if, if murder is hatred in the heart, then how many of us are serial killers? <laughs> you know, like how many of us hate or have been angry at some person or at some point in our lives? Everyone then doesn't meet the mark. That's that's what's shocking about this passage. And so I don't, I don't really want to gloss over that. I want us to really feel the full force and impact of what Jesus is saying here, because that's where the real change comes through. That's when we're really getting somewhere with understanding what Jesus is trying to get across. And so really, I have, I have three major points, three major points for this sermon. And, and this, this whole concept that I kind of introduced with it, it really bleeds into the first one. And that is that we, we shouldn't, we can't water down God's commands. We can't water down God's commands. So when we hear this shocking statement, it's easy to become defensive. It's easy to say, well, that's not me, or, or that's just crazy to think that's how Jesus or God sees it. And it's easy to want to like relax it, as the Pharisees did, or to, to dumb down the passage. But, but we, we, we can't. We can't do that. We have to take God at what he says here. Now, Jesus, and we got to make sure this is in context of verses 17 through 20, because 17 through 20 is really the thesis for the, for the next several uh, verses all the way up to the end of chapter 5. It's really kind of showing what Jesus is going to do with these commandments that the Pharisees have abused. And that's what Jesus is really doing. He's correcting the glossed over interpretation of the law that the Pharisees have been teaching. See, Jesus wasn't abolishing the law or he wasn't relaxing the commandments. That's what the Pharisees were actually doing. And so Jesus actually interprets the law correctly and truthfully. He corrects the distortions and the perversions that the Pharisees have propagated. 
He's showing the, the full extent, the far demanding, the far reaching implications of the law. He says, not one thing will pass in the law. He says that in, in, the, in the passage prior. He says, in fact, if your, law, if your righteousness doesn't even surpass that of the Pharisees, then you're, you're out of luck, right? Um, so really, the irony is that Jesus isn't the one relaxing the law or contradicting or destroying the law. He's actually saying that's what the Pharisees are doing. And of course, our, our righteousness has to surpass the Pharisaic righteousness because theirs was shallow, theirs was mercenary-like. They were just trying to get away with more. You see, Jesus is pushing for more than just this, this strict adherence to these, these trite standards that the Pharisees present. What Jesus is doing here, we see this when Nathaniel talked about the, the Beatitudes. What he's doing is he's talking more about heart transformation, not behavioral modification. So that's what Jesus is doing with these series of laws. In fact, there's six here total that Jesus goes through in this next following passage. Today we're just dealing with the section of anger. Um, but he, he's taking these particular instances of the law and showing how they've been perverted and showing the deeper heart transformation that has to take place. Uh, a theologian uh, and commentator, John Stott, he once wrote this. He said, Jesus was not looking for more obedience, but deeper obedience. Jesus is looking to instill principles, not rules. He's hoping to create within his people, within us, a holy and moral orientation wherein the heart bends naturally to God's good will. A system of laws or rules, that they may provide the standard, right? But it, it does not guarantee the adherence to its standard. People will still do what they ultimately in their hearts desire to do. And, and this is prophesied. In fact, Jesus is absolutely not contradicting the law or contradicting the prophets. For the prophets themselves talked about this. Jeremiah and Ezekiel uh, to be specific, I just want to read two verses here that I think will help clarify kind of what Jesus is accomplishing or doing in the Beatitudes and also in this section of verses here. In 31:33 of Jeremiah, God says, I will put my law within them. I will write it on their hearts and I will be their God and they shall be my people. Ezekiel 36:27 says, and I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. So, What's going on here is basically the Spirit is going to be within us. The Spirit is going to help us follow through on God's commands. And this is the law written not on stone, but on the heart. So the heart is oriented, naturally desires to fulfill God's will. See, Jesus is aiming for a deeper transformation of the heart. Just simply having the law, just simply having a list of rules doesn't mean that we're going to want to follow the rules, right? There, Okay, awesome. We have, the, we have the law. We have these commands. But Jesus is showing the, the implications that God doesn't want us just to follow these basic, you know, superficial rules. He wants true, lasting heart change, which the Pharisees could care less about. So Jesus is taking these particular instances of how the law was perverted, whether by relaxed restrictions, which is kind of the first four of the laws in this series, or by progressive permission, and he turns them upside down. He's trying to show the high bar of what true righteousness looks like. A righteousness that can only be obtained by spiritual regeneration that comes by faith in Jesus Christ. And who can only accomplish this transformation? Well, as Ezekiel literally says in his passage, by the Holy Spirit. So, you know, I, th I think this is the, the thing that I think is really important, is it doesn't matter how many rules or laws you have, you have to have your heart changed. 
I remember talking with a student on campus who was during an apologetic event where we were asking people about their worldview or their philosophy, how they understood love from their perspective. And I remember talking with one student who was a, a former uh, philosophy major, and he was actually pretty disillusioned with the entire program uh, because he felt like he, he kind of told me, he said, every, every religion, every philosophy, every belief system, every worldview, it has the same dilemma, the same problem. And Christianity is just, just one among many. He says, you come up with these standards, you come up with these morals, you come up with these laws, and they're good, they're right, they're awesome, like the Ten Commandments, they're great. But he says, it, it doesn't work, though. And I, was, I asked him, well, you know, why? Well, why do you say that? And he says, because nobody wants to do it. He said, you can have the perfect system, you can have the perfect standards and rules and checklists, but if nobody wants to do it, it's kind of worthless. <laughs> I remember saying to him, well, I, I don't know what, uh, you know, Christians you've talked to, I don't know what your experience is in the church, but... This may kind of shock you, but I was like, I, I agree. And he was like, really? He's like, okay, that's, that's a first. <laughs> and so I, I explained to him, I said, no, 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 the Ten Commandments was there to show, right, how unrighteous we were. It, 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 it's meant to show uh, that we failed. And that's what Jesus talks about in his gospel is, is a true heart change, wherein the people naturally want to fulfill these things. That's what the gospel does. It's not just another religious system to follow. It is a relationship. It is the Holy Spirit transforming us to develop these convictions and these desires to do the law. So that's, that's really what I want to get across, especially when it comes to, to applying these things, is that we need to shoot for heart transformation. Um, now, now, I do want to take a moment here. Um, this you know, be probably a little extra time to do this, but I think it's important because uh, I know I know there's always that concern of is Jesus contradicting the law of Moses, right? It, it just seems like he's rewriting the law. And I, and I was kind of doing some studying in this, and this was really helpful for me because John Stone's commentary provides four reasons why God isn't contradicting the law of Moses and that there just needs to be a little bit more contextual explanation here. The first thing in this series of, of passages that you'll be going through in the next few weeks is the first thing is the very law Jesus addresses in these passages, specifically with anger as well. It doesn't seem to be the Ten Commandments, but it seems to be the perverse interpretations of the commandments. For instance, in, in verse 21, it says, You have heard that it was said to those of old, You shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. Well, the first clause, you shall not murder, is definitely in the Torah. That's in the, the Ten Commandments. That's, that's listed there in Exodus. But then you see the second clause, uh, depending on your translation, there's a semicolon that then leads into, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. Well, this isn't necessarily found directly in the Torah, but it is, some people and commentators believe, uh, kind of the addendum that the Pharisees were adding, this idea that, yeah, and to interpret this passage, we're simply saying, if you kill someone, then yeah, this you fall under this category. And Jesus is saying, whoa, 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 no. <laughs> God had a lot more implications there than just, don't take a person's life. So we also see that in this series of six laws that Jesus um, reinterprets correctly, uh, the last two are, are definitely not part of those Ten Commandments. You had uh, the, the idea of it being said, you know, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. And then the next one was, you've heard it said, you know, you should love your neighbor but hate your enemy. Okay, well, that's, that's definitely not the Ten Commandments, right? So that kind of clues us in that Jesus is probably addressing some of these these relaxed restrictions and laws, these progressive permissions that the Pharisees were giving uh, to the people. Another indicator um, that Jesus isn't, isn't trying to overwrite the Ten Commandments, as he says here, G Jesus is using 
an introduction. He's introducing the laws. The way he's doing it is different from how he introduces inspired and divine scripture. How do we know this? Well, he says, and it was said. Usually in the New Testament Greek, whenever Jesus is introducing or, or about to quote um, Old Testament scripture, the Torah or the, or the prophets, he says, it is written. Uh, so it's a, it's, a, it's a minor difference, but I still think it's it's pretty serious and significant. We also know, as Shandy talked about last week, I mean, she, she literally was talking about how Jesus wasn't there to abolish the law, right? He wasn't attacking the law. He was attacking the posers who pretended they were fulfilling the law. And then lastly, Christ, throughout his ministry before and prior to this event, well, he, he never contradicts the Old Testament or disagrees with it, especially when we see uh, just, just earlier his temptation in the wilderness. He usually he literally was using Scripture to combat uh, Satan. So I think I think those are important things. I just want to throw those in there because I think it's helpful to, to remember Jesus isn't attacking the Old Testament. There's no contradiction. In fact, there's a beautiful continuity, especially when we look at Jeremiah and Ezekiel from the Old Covenant, the Old Testament to the New Testament. There is no uh, contention there or paradoxical statements at all. It, it fits in quite nicely. The application then, and I'm going to go back to the idea of if, when we kind of talk about anger, and we're going to get to those la- the next two points, which addresses this. And I know I've spent some time introducing this concept and these verses. I, I think is important though, is we need to shoot for heart transformation, not behavioral modification. So when it gets into anger, yes, we need to look inside our hearts. We need to not look at just simply our superficial actions or or or, or be simplistic in dealing with our sin and in dealing with maybe the desires or problems inside of us. It's easy to gloss over the deeper, more pervasive, far-reaching, far-demanding meaning of God's law. It really is. But we need to remember that God wants to instill principles inside of us, not just provide us a checklist. And, And next, don't change the finish line. Don't water down God's word. Don't try to set the bar low like the Pharisees were doing. We love to do that. We're always in danger of watering down the restrictions and allowing permissions so we can get away with more than we should. You know, we like to put our conscience to sleep. We love to sing the lullaby of gray morality to our drowsy conscience because it's easier, right? If I can lower the bar, then I'll feel less conviction. I'll feel less guilt. And we just want to deal with the emotion. We don't want to deal with the real problem inside. And so I, I, I put these two applications, especially as we talk about anger in the next uh, couple of verses. The second point that I really want to get across is that we shouldn't let anger fester within ourselves. We shouldn't let anger fester within ourselves. So now we dive into this particular abused command and promise that the Pharisees were giving to the people. They were simply saying that not killing a person protects you from divine judgment, that that the only sin that's occurring here is whether or not you kill somebody. Okay, But anger, hatred, they, they allowed so much room for so much more that could be very destructive. And Jesus is like, not, he's like, not in my kingdom. You know, I mean, it, it, his blueprints for his kingdom includes this change in the way that we handle anger and we handle hate. So he provides uh, three times, he states three times in three different ways uh, what this uh, command is actually saying. Uh, he, he states the sin and then the justice that follows suit. Number one, It says, everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. Whoever says, you fool, will be liable to the hell of fire. And that's in verse 22 
right there. So three times he states it. Now, Jesus isn't talking about three different sins. No, he's talking about three different manifestations of the same sin. And this is really important when it comes to to assessing our Christian walk and to assessing where we're at um, in, in terms of maybe the sin of anger or hate inside of our hearts. The first is, is the idea of anger and hate that leads to thoughts. Okay, angry and hateful thoughts is condemned. So, because I, and maybe some of you are like introverts, so you don't really get in confrontation, you don't like conflict, you're not a confrontational person, you don't have a bad temperament. But if you have hateful, angry thoughts toward a person, I'm sorry, but you, you still, you still are disobeying the commandment. <laughs> you know, so, so even though you might not have a temper, you know, uh, you lose your temper easy or have a, a confrontational temperaments. Even those who may be quiet, if they're harboring any type of hate or any type of anger, this still applies to you. It applies to me. He also talks about angry and hateful words and deeds, offenses, passive aggressiveness, manipulation, uh, insults, arrogance. You know, however it might play out, that too is also condemned. And then he talks about angry and hateful judgments. Is kind of the third aspect of how this sin manifests itself. Specifically, you know, when it says like, you know, whenever you say, oh, you fool, that person will be liable to hell of fire. I don't think it's just like, oh, you're cussing somebody out or you're literally saying you idiot. You know, I, I think that could be a fair interpretation. You could definitely be saying it from a, from a pretty bad, uh, you know, heart position. But I think what Jesus is kind of saying here, because fool means uh, this person who's wayward in their faith, this person who who is not under grace, a person who is in some sense eternally judged. I think Jesus is asserting that we ourselves are in danger of hellfire if we prematurely judge someone's eternal state simply because of some slight or sin against us. It's dangerous. That is dangerous for we are wielding God's sword of judgment, not for his cause, but for our own cause. So, you know, the expletive like GED, I can't say it. It's not okay. But if you say it to somebody, right, what you're kind of saying that statement, whether you mean it or not, is, is this idea of you deserve hell. Right. I mean, we all do. Right. But you're kind of saying that they deserve it more than you do out of that anger and out of that hate. That's really serious. Right. That 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 reeks of somebody who hasn't really experienced maybe the mercy of God or hasn't really reflected on it. If it's a consistent behavior, it is a dangerous thing. And that's what that's what Jesus is saying in this passage. Like I said, I don't want to dumb down. He says whoever says that is in danger of hell of fire. I mean, that's that's serious. Let's not dumb that down. Let's 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 wrestle with that as we think about it. So we have these three, diff- these three different manifestations of sin, and, and what I want to do is, is, is talk through that. You know, Jesus is unfolding this particular law, and it targets the anger within us that can slowly seep out or implodes from the inside out. And it can manifest itself in many ways. I, I, a list of this would just be, you know, if we're angry with malicious intent, bitter without forgiveness, struck down by chronic grudges, Grumbling and complaining about others with little to no forbearance or long suffering. You know, if there's there's just certain people, right, that you just you don't really want them in your life, right? Like you want them gone. Maybe not, you know, murdered gone, but like definitely like you know, I don't wish I wish you were not here. I don't want to see your face. Um, or, or maybe there's people that are just difficult to be around, and we have little patience. We get angry and hateful towards them, and we have no long suffering, no forbearance towards them. Or we're spiteful for revengeful purposes or offended at every slight and trivial trespass. You know, maybe we're neurotic. We're always hateful at people because we're reading into things way too much, suspicious all the time. Irritable without just cause. 
and people different than us, you know, whatever it might be, let's, you know, put your mind at rest. All of it is liable to judgment. If you're wondering if it's a sin, it probably is if you're angry and hateful for unjust causes. Or maybe it even is for a just cause, but the way you're reacting is hateful and not gracious, not as Christ would want us to respond. So we, we, we need to we need to ex- accept that is what Christ is saying. Don't dumb down the the saying that Jesus has in His Word. Okay, and it's easy to defend ourselves and say, well, you know, I'm not angry or hateful. I'm not murderous. You know, I'm not, I'm not a Hitler. I'm not a Stalin. That's what a lot of people like to say when they come up against God's, you know, law. Is like, well, compared to other people, I'm I'm really not that bad. Okay, sure, you may not be, you know, a Stalin or Hitler. Nobody's saying that. Okay, but that misses the point. We are not judged for the degree of our sin, but for the very presence of it within us. God is not looking at the amount of sin so much as the depth of sin in our heart. I think that's really important uh, to remember. You know, I, I kind of see it as, as, you know, when we think about sin or good and bad, we, we love to use the Western legal mindset of like a scale, you know, where my good outweighs my bad. But that's just not... For one, how the Bible sees it. Number two, that's that's also just practically not true. I mean, there's certain things that you can do in your life that provide such a destruction you can never pay it back. Like, for instance, let's take murder, right? You take someone's life, and there are many people who, who have murdered, who who have come to grace, who have who have been changed. But no matter how much good they can do, it doesn't take away the fact of the destruction they have caused. There's no repaying that. So sin just, it, it just doesn't work that way. Just not, it's just not practical. If that's the case, then we can just work really hard at doing everything good, and we can, we can undo the, the the horrible, you know, destruction in the world. But that's just not the case. It's more like cancer. Now, when you say, "Oh, you know, I'm not that bad," it's kind of like saying, "Yeah, you're not. You don't have stage four cancer, right? Where where death is imminent or it's maybe terminal. But if you were say at stage one, you would still have to deal with it." It had to be restrained or destroyed. Otherwise, it will progress to stage four. So and I think that's how we think of sin is like, oh, you know, if someone's told me that they had stage one cancer and they were like, you know, I'm just going to kind of wait it out and, and I'll get to, I'll get around to it at some point. It's not bad, you know, but, it, you know, if it does get bad, then I'll deal with it. No, no sane person would think that way. And it's the same thing with sin. Like its very presence is destructive. It has to all go. All of it. And so, you know, no matter where you're at, maybe in your struggle with anger, you know, or hate or, or, or vengefulness, or whatever it might be, um, the important thing is no matter how small it is, don't let it fester within yourself. Don't just let it go. Don't think, well, it's not that bad, so I'm just going to let it be. You can't. You need to deal with it. And, and, and one of the practices I think we can do here is, is, is to realize that all action that we take, whether you know, out of sin, like anger or hate, we need to remember that it comes from somewhere. And I have this little application thing that I think is helpful. It's kind of a technical term, but at the same time, you know, this is at a, you know, University of Engineers. So, you know, I think, I think you'll do just fine with it, but I, I call it retrospective introspection. Okay. I know it's, it's, it's kind of a, <laughs> a bit of a statement there, but retrospective means to look back Introspection means to look within, if you want the, the dumbed-down version. Um, but I kind of like the technical term. Retrospective introspection. This is the idea of looking back and looking within. It's, it's retracing our steps. 
Because every time we lash out in anger, we need to first practice that looking back at how our own hearts progressed and devolved into committing this sin, this attitude, or this action. It just didn't come from nowhere. And how often, I, I can't tell you how many times I hear people, or, or even myself sometimes makes this excuse, where we do something sinful, we maybe lash out in anger, or, or it could be even with lust or any other type of thing. And then when you're asked, you know, what happened, you're just like, I, I don't know, I, I just did it. But why? I don't know, I just, I did it. <laughs> yeah, I mean, okay, yeah, fair. You, you don't know why, how you got there, okay? But, but you need to do the work. You need to, you need to look back and you need to ask, where did this anger start? Where did it fester? And how did it grow? And I think part of that is, is why the Beatitudes are actually kind of helpful as going back to that manifesto that Nathaniel talks about, kind of that, that main succinct blueprint for what the Christian heart should look like. And we go back to that and we say, okay, let's, let's say for instance, okay, let's just take an example here because I like to troubleshoot this a little bit, kind of make it a little bit more, um, more tangible. Okay, but there's probably people in this ministry, people in your housing, your roommates, or in your church, or wherever, that you maybe don't always get along with. Maybe somebody is arrogant, right, and says something rude or offensive at one point. Maybe it's trivial, maybe it's not. Okay, and you hear that, and you respond to it, and, and, and inside you don't say anything to them, but you're inside the seething with anger. You're upset. How dare they insult me? How, how dare they make that offense? So this person being arrogant, you know, and I'm not justifying what they're doing. We're looking at you. We're looking at ourselves. We're not looking at them. This person, at some point or another, has a conversation, and they make a mistake maybe in like some theological statement, or they say something dumb or wrong, and you get the chance to correct them on the spot right then and there, and you do it. And you know what? You're correct. Maybe they're wrong in what they're saying, and you correct them. But within your heart, you did it out of spite, or you did it out of revenge, right, to get back at them in a passive-aggressive, manipulative way, and really that anger is not a loving thing. In fact, it probably would, according to Jesus, be liable to judgment. Okay? Now, but it, nobody knows, right? Nobody knows. They, they think, oh, yeah, you got them. You brought them down, right? And you think it's your job to bring people down a couple notches. Um, and really, inside, though, there is this anger, this bitterness that maybe you're not dealing with. And, and I say this because, you know, I myself have struggled with this very thing. Um, and what, what we have to do is go back and ask, where, where did this come from? You know, where, where are these feelings and these attitudes coming from? And I, I kind of go back through, and what I do personally is I go through the Beatitudes, and I and I, I kind of retrace my steps. I look back at, okay, was I a peacemaker in that situation? Now, I might have been right, but in my heart, I, I just wasn't really advocating for peace. My goal wasn't for reconciliation. My goal wasn't to help this guy out. My goal was to bring him down <laughs> and, and, and the cause of seeing, the cause of problem. But then furthermore than that, I, I, you know, maybe I just wasn't showing mercy to him. Maybe... I was being unmerciful. And then that, that kind of brings up the question for me, like, well, have I really thought about God's mercy towards me? Am I forgetting how much I've been saved, how much he's forgiven me for every single trivial offense or insult that I've given to him or, or maybe the sinful way I've acted, like just now? And then furthermore, as we kind of go to the first step in that Beatitudes of being poor in spirit, perhaps I'm not humble as much as I thought I was. I blame this guy for being arrogant, but here I am being arrogant. That's retrospective introspection. It's, it's looking deeper into the heart and seeing where the real problem is at. Because I think what we think is we, we, we simplify things and we don't realize the, the demands of God's law is that all should be sanctified within us, including our very thoughts, our very heart. 
And a lot of times I think we're just lazy. We don't want to do the work of looking into our hearts and saying, where might have I gone wrong? Where might have this anger festered within myself? It didn't just come out of nowhere. And a lot of it comes back to reflecting on the gospel, reflecting on what Christ has done for you. That is a great motivation to do what is right. That is a great motivation. That's what our hearts are supposed to be oriented around. That's how Christ first loved us. How Christ, despite the wrath against us, still laid down his life to save us. He wasn't just trying to get back at us. He actually gave his life for us. That should prompt us in heart change and in changing the way we act. The third and final point here is that we shouldn't let anger fester in the community. We can't let anger fester in the community. In verses 23 through 26, Jesus talks about two situations in which we must apply the Beatitudes of peacemaking, mercy, and humility. The first is in a worship setting, and the first is is probably like in a civil community, just kind of in a community abroad. Uh, But I want to read the verses just real quick, 23, starting there. So if you're offering your gift at the altar and there, remember that your brother has something against you. Leave your gift there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother, and then come and offer your gift. Come to terms quickly with your accuser while you're going with him to court, Lest your accuser hand you over to the judge, and the judge to the guard, and you be put in prison. Truly I say to you, you will never get out until you have paid the last penny. So in the first setting, in, in the worship setting, before a person should ever bring their offering or sacrifice to God, which is in this context, in the Jewish context, if they know they've wronged somebody, they need to go and deal with it. They should address it. It should be specific, and it should be immediate. And if they're the perpetrator or the offender, it is their responsibility to initiate reconciliation. It is their job to pursue peace. So so that's the first one. The second one is in civil community. Jesus talks about this division between two people. He says, if you wrong this person, you shouldn't let it progress to a civil court. That's, that's kind of the, the summary of what he's saying here. He says, you need to go deal with it before the guy goes to the, the judge and you, you get thrown into prison because you've wronged him whether by bodily harm, whether by name, or whether by even property. It says your job for having caused that problem to deal with it. In a court shouldn't have to do what a follower of Christ ought to naturally follow through with. You shouldn't have the court drag you to do what's right. That's, that's not okay. You should, you should naturally do it out of, the, out of the, the heart change inside of you. So, so a couple of like applications here when I, when I think about this in terms of our community and not less, letting anger fester in our community. The first is that if there is anger or hate within you, don't, don't fool yourself. You know, it's easy to think that we're continuing in good fellowship and relationship with God when we are actually distracting ourselves from the problems and the issues within our relationships, specifically, specifically any anger or any hate. You know, you can go to church, we can raise our hands and sing, we can do a small group, you can do service projects, you can read the Bible, you can do all these everyday spiritual disciplines, but as long as anger rests in your heart, you're not living in obedience. So as long as there is infighting, as long as there's some sort of division that you're not dealing with, that you're unwilling to deal with, maybe out of fear or out of you don't think the person would change, or, or maybe you yourself don't want to admit you've done wrong, don't fool yourself into thinking that you're right with God here and now. This is, this is a very serious thing. So don't let it fester. You, you don't fool yourself. The, the second is to take initiative. If you know this is you, you know if it's you. Is there anyone with whom you need to reconcile if it is possible? Is there anybody that you must make amends with? Don't expect to wait for them to come to you. 
And if you don't initiate this process, don't expect for things to just get better. Okay. You know, we live in a, we live in a generation and time where we just do not like conflict. That is that is the probably the biggest problem I've seen. And when I mean conflict, I don't mean guns ablazing, hateful anger. That's obviously what we're preaching against here. But just an unwillingness to confront to, to, to handle conflict, and, and we, we just can't. We're so afraid of it. And what happens is, instead of dealing with it, we let it fester. You know, maybe maybe, it, you know, maybe in your relationship, you know, boyfriend or girlfriend, you, you maybe have some disagreements or issues or, or, or maybe some resentment or anger. Instead of talking and working through it, you just kind of sit there and seethe in it. Or with your friends or with your roommate or with any person in your life. But you have to take initiative to make peace. Peacemaking is not an easy endeavor. It never is, but it is necessary. And the other thing when it comes to taking initiative, and, and, and I want to try cautiously here and, and be nuanced enough, but another problem I've seen is because we're afraid of conflict, we love to bring in third parties to do the work for us. And what happens is instead of dealing with it, we let it fester in this problem, which is maybe like an insult or offense and a trivial offense that we're angry about, we let it grow into a huge issue. We gossip and slander and talk about it all of, all this time. We love talking about it, but we never like dealing with it. And next thing you know, it becomes such a big issue that now, before we even talk with one another about the issue, we're now bringing in other people to help deal with it. We have people advocate for us, maybe prematurely. Now, this doesn't mean that there are certain situations. There always is. Um, you know, I'm aware of this, that we need to bring in third parties. We need to bring in people to help alleviate those things, even even to the case of like a civil court. That's not to, to dumb down the necessity of that. But oftentimes, we do allow problems to fester and grow within. And my question is, could I have done anything to keep it from progressing this far? Could I have done anything to keep it from, from becoming this, this destructive, major, catastrophic event because I just let my anger fester or allowed someone else's anger to fester and didn't address the problem? And that, that's why we have to be urgent. That's kind of the last point here with, with this application is we need to be urgent. Jesus says you need to do it immediately, literally dropping what you do. Drop your gift at the altar, literally leaving it there, and go and make it right. Jesus is trying to explain the necessity of urgency in dealing with this matter. Because he says if you don't, the destruction and the consequences could be insurmountable. He says in the very end of that last verse, truly I say to you, you will never get out until you have paid the last penny if you end up in prison in this specific situation. So as we kind of come to a conclusion here, right, I think we need to, to remember not to water down God's commands. We can't let anger fester within ourselves and we can't let anger fester in the community. We need to deal with it. And uh, the commentator Matthew Henry, he, he makes a bit interesting point about this final application part that Jesus talks about in this, in this section of verses, specifically 23 through 20, 26. He says there's a temporal human you know, um, thing that we can glean from it, but then he also says there's a spiritual meaning. This idea that there is a division that exists right now currently between us and God. And there's a desperate need for reconciliation. And whether we want to admit it or not, there is this anger and hatred towards God because just as we want to water down God's law or we, we do these sort of sinful actions, it's because we're angry and we don't want to do what's right. And there's this time right now 
right, to make things right with God, to come quick terms quickly with God before the day of judgment. And before God comes to judge and make things right, we have an opportunity for reconciliation with God. There's this sin that festers within us. Maybe you're not a believer. Maybe you're an agnostic or you're not quite sure about Christianity. And I implore you that I, I truly, sincerely believe that mankind's greatest dilemma, greatest issue, isn't the lack of standards or morals that we've heard plenty of times. The history has heard over and over again. It's that we don't want to follow through with it. That deep down we need a heart change. That what we really need is the presence of God in our lives. That what we really need is reconciliation with God. We need to deal with it. I think the greatest you know, solution is that reconciliation, whether social, ethical, political, whatever you want to say, underlying all of that is this one significant issue. That before God, we are unable to pay our moral debt. That we have wronged God. And even though... God was the one wronged. He's the one that still takes initiative to come to us through his son and offer salvation. Apart from Christ, we will never be able to pay the full amount of our moral debt to God. But in Christ, he has paid it all. And through the gift of his spirit, our hearts can be transformed. The very law written in stone now written on our heart from the inside out. So easy to blame others, so easy to get angry and blame God, so easy to blame the people around us when inside we need that change. It's not about changing others, it's about seeing how God can change us within. You know, so if we do violence, let us do violence against our own sin. If we hate, let us hate our own sin. Let's remember what the root problem is. And before that day of judgment, let's come quickly to God. Let's make sure that we are reconciled to God. And if you're kind of on the fence about that, I encourage you and I implore on you on your behalf that what Jesus is talking about here in the Sermon on the Mount is the deeper root issue of sin. This is, this, this is mankind's solution. This is, dare say, the, the utopia that, God, that, that, that all man strives for and desires. The kingdom of heaven is that. It doesn't, it's not a place. It is, it, it's, it's a it's, it's a change that begins in us. And these are the blueprints. This is the thing I said, that the manifesto of the king. And this we need to obediently follow. So I encourage you guys to, to consider these things. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, uh, we thank you for uh, your, your, your word here. We thank you for even the hard-hitting, uh, difficult passages. Um, help us not to become too familiar with it. We forget it's deeper meaning. We forget that's really going on here. Lord, we pray that um, when it comes to anger or hate, uh, that if we struggle with that or have that, you help bring it to our attention. Help us to deal with it. Help us not to let it fester in our lives and in our community. Help us to follow uh, follow you truthfully, not just in rules and in more obedience, but in deeper, uh, more meaningful obedience to you. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.